Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is he is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be, be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again I saw that under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So how you view the events in your life has a great deal to do with your perspective on the event, right? For instance, consider with me uh, different views, different perspectives on, on the dinner meal that you eat at night. From the perspective of the person who has to plan all of the meals and cook them, the coming, the approaching dinner meal has a certain a feel to it because of their perspective. They are the one who has to plan it. They have to grocery shop for it. They have to cook it. They have to, you know, do all the preparation and spend the time and the labor uh, working on this meal. That's, I've heard that's how this is done. So I say, so from their perspective, this is how they view an event. And then take, take, so that's, that's kind of the flavor of that dinner meal. But now take it from the perspective of the person who basically just has to show up and enjoy the thing that's cooked. And they sit down and they enjoy the dinner meal. From those two different perspectives, dinner has an entirely different feel to it, does it not? To one, it is maybe a glad duty, but it is a, it is a job. And to the other, it's just purely an enjoyment, a time to sit down and enjoy. One dinner, one feels dinner is a burden and a problem to be solved. 
And the other views dinner as a wonderfully easy and satisfying experience. And it's all just based upon, it's the same event. The same thing's happening, but it's all about the different perspectives that come to this event. Or have you ever watched a ball game? So we had all kinds of college football going on yesterday. Have you ever watched a ball game and been absolutely convinced of a certain call? You just, you know that you know that either the refs got it wrong or they got it right and this is the way the call should have gone. And then all of a sudden you see the replay of the same event that you witnessed but from a different angle and you realize usually that you were right, right? (laughs) Sometimes that you were wrong, but you know, usually that you were right. It is the way that it went down. The same play that everyone saw, but the truth of the event was revealed differently just by a different perspective. Well, Ecclesiastes, as a, as a book of wisdom literature, is, is working to get us to view our world from a certain perspective. I said last week, it's not, Ecclesiastes isn't the kind of book where you're just getting your systematic theology nailed down of point one, point two, point three, point four, and then point one A, and then, you know, it's some sort of, and so that when you take the multiple question answer test at the end of the day, you can go to the index and find the simple answer, and oh, and question Question one, you answer B. It's, it's not laid out like that. Wisdom literature is a, it's a whole different genre of literature that it isn't just trying to give you quick and easy one-off answers. It's working on getting you to see life from a different perspective, a, the perspective of wisdom. And that's what Ecclesiastes is working on us. It, is, it does this not by just telling us outright, here's the good view you should have. Look at life this way. It does it by showing us dissatisfying perspective of all these other views. And then constantly is coming back to, you see how dissatisfying looking at life this way is? Do you see how upsetting looking at life this way is? Do you see how life under the sun, without anyone over the sun, life just is vanity when you look around and you look and you look and you look. And it's just, it's just constantly showing us the dissatisfying perspective of the other views of, of life apart from God. Ecclesiastes is a a splash of cold water in the face of a culture that is drunk on busyness and distraction. Just occupied. Stay busy. Stay distracted. Don't think about the hard realities of life. Just ignore them. Just keep, keep going. Keep going. And Ecclesiastes is a bucket of ice water to wake up and to view life from the view of, of wisdom. If I could run on with a sports analogy, it's like coming up to the slightly uh, inebriated fan up in the football stadium, and he's got their shirt off, you know, and he's painted half one color and half the other color, he's cheering on his team, and then you take him down, and, and he's, he's convinced that the refs got it wrong, and you bring him down, and you dump, dump his head in a bucket of ice water and show him the replay so he can actually see, here's what happened. That's what Ecclesiastes is trying to do for us. However, the further complication is that when the book of Ecclesiastes does this and then we sit down to watch the replay, we realize there really isn't an easy answer. There really isn't. You're watching the replay. You're seeing how this goes down. And Ecclesiastes is is bringing up the point of you can sit down and watch this replay and it's just hard to figure out what the right call is. Sometimes you just, you can watch it I mean, and how many times we witnessed that? I don't know how I don't, this call could go. I don't know how to call this. It's just, it's kind of up in the air. It isn't always so cut and dry. 
And so it, to go back to the dinner example, it's, it sobers us up so that we can realize and we can see these other perspectives. But all that it really shows is that life is far more complicated than the neat and tiny explanations we would like to put on it. Whose perspective is right in the dinner example? It's complicated, isn't it? <laughs> Whose is right? Well, it depends on which perspective you're from. Well, they, and, and, and is the person cooking the meal, is their, obligate, is, their, uh, is their feeling towards the event just one of burden? Or is there a glad joy in, in providing something for those who are going to eat the meal? And so those of you who've cooked dinner, you know the, the complications that come with life. And that's what Ecclesiastes is just trying to wake us up to, that we would live wisely at this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, we've discussed many different themes and the difficulties that this writer brings up. He's talked about the folly of searching for pleasure in life apart from God. The folly of looking to riches, to gardens, to, uh, to women, to, to, to mates, all these things, to just prosperity. All these things he's tried to search for to find his pleasure. He's, we've looked at um, the folly of thinking that life is yours to control and do with as you please. We've looked at the folly of thinking you know what time it is. Now, I don't mean not what time it is in the day, but that you know what's next in your life. You know what season this is. The folly of knowing those things. Last week, we looked about and talked about the reality that wisdom is living life, enjoying God as his creatures in his creation under his care. Wisdom is enjoying God as his creatures in his world under his care. Well, here in chapter 9, he revisits this issue of the seeming unfairness of life. He paints this clear dichotomy, right? This clear distinction between these two groups of people. We have those who are the good and then the evil, the clean, the unclean, the one who sacrifices, the one who does not sacrifice. This dichotomy, and we can get our minds around what he's talking about there. We have those who are blatantly trying to do the right thing. And then we have those who are just trying to be dishonest and whatever and, and they don't care about anybody else or just serving themselves. We have these groups of people. We understand the difference between those two groups. But what is hard to wrap our minds around that those we, we know who are intentionally going around doing acts of evil and destruction and those who are doing works of doing forces of good, we understand those differences. But what does Solomon go on to say? That the same event happens to them all. How are some trying so hard to be, do good and be good and, and do the right thing and so many are out serving themselves and doing just selfish, living selfishly, not caring about the repercussions and the same thing happens to them all. How can the righteous suffer and die just the same as the wicked? That's an, that's a, that's an odd injustice in the world. If, you, if you're looking at life just from the viewpoint of life under the sun, apart from God, how can that be Right? How can that be right? And this is one of the great difficulties Ecclesiastes wrestle with, wrestles with. And I think this is one of the reasons why the Bible is such an incredible book. Because it doesn't shy away from these sorts of tough questions. That's a tough question to think about. Why? Well, Ecclesiastes doesn't just pretend like it doesn't happen. I mean, we could sit up here and we could become a, a, a TV prosperity preacher and say, listen, go with God and everything goes the way you want it to go. And you'd all, and we, and some, you wouldn't all, but some, some people, a lot of people do buy it. They're like, hey, I want that God. 
and it works until they get out in the real world and it doesn't work anymore because we find out life is far more complex than just this sort of, you know, go with God and everything is going to be great. That, that interesting statement there at nine, you know, how, how many times do you hear the race does go to the swift and you hear the battle does go to the strong? Well, what's Ecclesiastes say? The race doesn't always go to the swift and the battle doesn't always get given to the strong. You can do righteous things and end up being punished for it. You can do the right thing, end up having it cause you harm. You'd been better served personally to have done wickedness, to have lied, to have deceived, to have done something nefarious and then gotten an award or rewarded for it. But because you were honest, like in a job, you can think of occupations, things like that, where you've, you've had the chance to deceive someone or to do something dishonest, and it would have been better for your job if you had done it. But then if you're honest about it, you might end up actually losing your job. How can that be? That's, that's messed up. And that's what Ecclesiastes is dealing with. The writer mentioned this, mentions things like this earlier. Chapter 8, verse 14 says... There is a vanity that takes place on the earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this also is vanity. How can this be? Chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. <laughs> well, that doesn't make any sense. What is going on? What's the veil that Ecclesiastes is being removed? The veil, under the sun, we do not know how life circumstances will turn out. The same events happen to us all. We do not know. We are Creatures, we are not the creator. And what Ecclesiastes is doing is trying to get us out of this perspective of viewing life from our little corner as creatures, thinking that we are the creator. So much of the disappointment comes in when we fail to realize that we are these creatures. And we begin to try to live life as though we are the creators. We are the ones. We should get to have all the answers. We should get to know. We should be on the inside. We should be, as J.I. Packer says in his book, Knowing God, we want to be in the signal box. He talks, he talks about that he's writing it from a different generation, but all the train cars going this way and that way. And if you're out on the front deck of the train station and you're watching this train go forward and this train go backward and, and then it goes backward again, it comes forward and it hooks on here. And, and you think, what? They don't know what they're, this thing's a mess. But there's somebody up in the signal box. And maybe you work for BNSF, you might argue differently. But there's somebody who does know what's going on that is ordering the cars to go a certain way to achieve a certain purpose. We all want to be the guys in the signal box. We think we belong in the chamber that gets to say and see why everything is doing and going the way that it goes. Instead of living, as our subtitle for this series is, embracing our lives as creatures. We aren't the creators. We aren't the one in the signal box. We are the ones under the sun trying to live life, embracing that 
as creatures. We're seeking to live life as though we are the sovereign one of the universe and we are not embracing life as creatures. As creatures, what do we not know? We do not know how to ensure the future. Will this turn out for good? Whatever this is, whatever thing in your life, will this turn out for good or will it turn out for evil? Will this thing last long or will it pass quickly? And I mention those two ignorances because they're the two comments that are most often given to us in seasons of trouble in an effort to comfort us. People will say, it'll all work out in the end. I'm sure this will all be fine. Or I'm sure, you know, this, this too shall pass and you'll go on to the next thing. And people often say that things will work out uh, or that difficulties will pass. They say them as words of comfort. But when we, re- when we really face the reality of life, those aren't promises anyone on this earth can give us. You cannot promise me this will all go well. You cannot promise me this will all pass away. When things are going wrong, can anyone really say this will work out okay? And not if they mean in this life it will go okay. Take your children, your own health, your relationships, your job. Take literally anything and try to say over it that you are certain this will all turn out good in this life. You can tell yourself that. But some of us, some of you, have lived long enough to know there is no way to guarantee that. We don't have that kind of authority. We're not in the signal box. We don't know how these things are going. There is no guarantee and no way of knowing. Many well-meaning people would come to, to Darla and I and try to comfort us when, when Jana was going through her, she'd been diagnosed with her congenital heart defect, right, at two, three months old and was going to need open chest surgery and had parainfluenza and wasn't, it was really scary there for, for a little bit, uh, quite a bit. And, you know, I'm sure this is going to be okay. And you're nice because you know they're just trying to give you some comfort in the moment. You know, it, this will turn out okay. Oh, thanks. No one knows that. They didn't know that. We're not in the signal box. We don't know these things. Now, praise God, she is here and healthy. But the same thing when Darla was getting ready to go and, and have her, her procedure to find out what was going on internally and find out it's cancer, this will all turn out okay. You'd have no way to promise that to me. We don't know. We don't know. Now, if, if by saying things will be okay that you mean that you'll get a favorable result in this life, we do not know. To say that is to become the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse, starting in verse 16, is the parable of this rich fool. Jesus tells this parable. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Everything, that's that's another way of saying this will all turn out okay. Verse 20, God said to him, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We don't know the times and seasons of life. We don't know everything's going to go okay. If we mean by that, everything's going to work out the way we want it to in this world. And we don't know the times and seasons of this life. Some things that we think, this is only going to be for a short moment, so I just got to get through it. 
ends up being like, like I don't know, the, the boss that you really don't like. You think, well, surely this boss is going to move on. So if I just hang on for this next month, and then all of a sudden they've, they've hung on for years, you have to put up with a, with a problem, or, or various things of more severity than that. Things you think, surely this will end quickly, end up lasting way longer than you think they do. And things that you take for granted and think, this will always be this way. This, I, I'm just going to set, you know, I'm just going to, and just almost ignore the, the blessing that those things are because you feel like they're going to last forever. You wake up one morning and they're gone. We do not know the times and the seasons. We are not in control and we were never meant to be. We were never meant to be. We are creatures, not the creator. Last week I talked about placing too much weight on things that were never meant to carry that kind of weight, investing too much weight. We, how we only end up breaking those things and end up disappointing ourselves and in some cases damned. When we try to take the things of this world and carry the weight of making us happy in a way they weren't meant to carry that weight, it destroys them, disappoints us, and potentially damns us. Trying to make it carry a weight that it was never meant to carry under the sun. In the same way, when we try to carry the weight of responsibility, when we cannot embrace the truth that we are mere creatures in the Creator's world, we find ourselves broken by the countless realities we cannot control. And if we continue down that road, we find ourselves disappointed, absolutely, and ultimately damned. Disappointment because we were never made to carry that kind of weight, that kind of responsibility, as though everything is riding upon the, crea- the creatures to figure out how things are going to go. It, we are never made to carry that weight of that responsibility, and ultimately it will end up in damnation because we are not God. To, to try to put that weight upon yourself as though you're the one who should be able to have it all figured out and know exactly why and exactly what and exactly when is to say you belong in the signal box and God should get on out. And that is idolatry. If we spend our lives attempting to dethrone God, we should not be surprised when we do not find ourselves welcomed at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So we don't know. We don't know. But as creatures, the reason why I want us to embrace life as creatures is not just to crush us on what we don't know. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm not going to say amen and go home. Because there's, there's a positive side then to being creatures. Yeah, we don't know. We don't get to sit in the signal box. We don't know all these answers. But as creatures in the creator's world, what do we know? We know there is someone in the signal box. There is someone in control above the sun. And we can work our way through all the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's one of the, it's a very fruitful thing to go through. But what as creatures do we know that there is someone in control above the sun? But if you've been here for the past couple of years going through the book of Luke, time and time again, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows the future. He he has great power and authority over nature, over demons, over disease, and over death itself. He has great knowledge of the future events. He knows, when we pick it back up in a couple of weeks, he knows he's going to the cross and he's going to be crucified. We've highlighted the incredible sovereignty put on display by Jesus in his working of his miracles and his knowledge of future events. If you want to be reassured 
of a God who is in control, pick up a gospel and read it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, pick one. Pick up a gospel and read it and see a God who is in this signal box, who knows what's going on and who is accomplishing his purposes. While we may not be able to make sense of it under the sun, it does not mean that God doesn't have a plan and that he isn't performing it. Now, this is where we object. Well, I don't really like the plan. I mean, maybe you say that. Maybe you're better. Maybe, maybe you don't. But I, I, man, I don't like the plan. We cannot forget that we are getting just small glimpses of the, work, of the working of God. Just absolutely tiny glimpses of the working. When you take the narrative of history, what God has been doing since Adam and Eve out into eternity future, and then you take our sliver of existence, this is the glimpse we're judging the whole timeline by, is by our little glimpse. So we think, I don't like the plan, but we cannot forget, this is just a small glimpse in the working of God. One point of Ecclesiastes is getting us to see that we don't have the equipment to understand, yet alone run God's world. We are stuck under the sun. And from this perspective, countless realities end up all messed up. We look at it and we say, well, this is all vanity. This is all meaningless. This is all smoke. The illustration of the loom is very helpful here, I think, when you think about Corey Tim Boom is very famous for this, but she kept, she'd keep a potholder upside down on her coffee table and people would come over and they'd see it on her coffee table and they'd, they'd say, well, that's upside down. They'd turn it over and she'd go over and correct it and she'd turn it back upside down. And it was the ugly side up. All the, all the broken strands of the strings and you just looked at it and it was just a big, it was a big mess of strings. You couldn't make sense. You thought, what in the world is this ugly thing laying here? It's ridiculous. And then, and, and that's to what, she, what she was symbolizing with that thing being, all those strands being upside down is this was her perspective of life under the sun. And that on the top side, when you turn it back over, there's a beautiful picture that all these broken strings ended up weaving. Now underneath it, you couldn't tell. You had no idea what the picture was. It didn't look beautiful at all. It was very confusing. But from the proper spot, from, you could say, the view above the sun, all of those broken strings made something beautiful. From above the loom, from the loomer's perspective, something beautiful is being made. Perspective is everything. And we don't have the best seat. One day, as we cross over, into eternity, I believe it will look back and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. God be praised for the good that he has done. But that isn't today. Today we are Ecclesiastes. We are life under the sun. And we look up and we see all these tattered strings and, all the, and we look around and we think, what a mess this all is. We aren't in the signal box. We are embracing, seeking to embrace life as creatures. So what we do know is that First of all, there is someone in control above the sun. The second thing is that our present circumstances then are too temporary to diagnose the Creator's disposition towards us. Our present circumstances are too temporary to diagnose the Creator's disposition towards us. Joel and I have uh, just about finished, I think we did finish it last night, a graphic novel on the book of Job. And the artwork was really interesting. It kind of, so we thought, well, we're going to read this. And I kind of worried about, should we get into the book of Job? Because it's a hard book. 
And it was very interesting to, fascinating to read. It's a condensed version because you know if you've read the book of Job, boy, it's a lot of just slogging through a lot of bad arguments. But even though this was condensed, it took us several nights to get through this argument. Job is suffering. Job is struggling. And all of these friends are coming up and accusing Job, saying it's your fault and just repent. And don't, can't you see this is God's judgment on you? Isn't it obvious that you're the reason why all these things have gone wrong? And I had to keep asking Joel to remind myself, is this Job's fault? And you know at the beginning of the story, no, it's not Job's fault at all. This is something, this is something of the workings of God and, and what his plan, what he's doing. It's, 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 there's some behind-the-scenes work going on Job is not aware of at all. But reminding it's not Job's fault that this evil had come upon him. Thankfully, Joel knew the story, remembered the beginning, and that Job's circumstances were no indication of God's thoughts towards him. And neither should our circumstances be the thermometer by which we check God's love for us. Do not look around you at the vanity of this life under the sun and let that be the barometer or the thermometer or whatever you want to call to, to check God's disposition towards you. How would Paul have answered the question as he's stuck in prison, suffering? How would he have answered, if he was looking at his circumstances, how would, how would he have answered regarding God's love for him if that's where he was stuck? Which brings us into the third thing we can know. Because they are things that the saints throughout the ages have known. Through all of life's trials and all of life's monotonies, we know that we can look to Christ and be assured there of God's thoughts towards us. When we look around and it's all confusing and it's all a mess and it's all a wreck, we can look to Christ and be assured of God's thoughts towards us. We're going to end in Romans 8. If you want to get that back out, I encourage you to. Romans chapter 8, looking in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this is what Paul knows I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Skip down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. You look at all of those, and if you're diagnosing your life based upon your circumstances, you come to the conclusion, God is not happy with me. But if these things are coming to you, if all these things are happening, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, thrown away, disregarded. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure... Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What has God done for us in Christ? He has given his own son 
to die on a cross, to suffer the judgment of God in the place of sinners so that we can escape God's judgment and be brought into his favor. What Romans 8.32 tells us is that if God did that, not sparing his own son to save us, why do we not think that God will do whatever it takes to bring us all the way home to himself, free from sorrow and free from disappointment? The answer is he won't. He won't. If he didn't spare his son to save you, he will not spare anything to bring you all the way home to himself. He didn't spare Christ. He'll spare nothing in ensuring your forever satisfaction in him. Nothing can separate those who are his from his undying love. But does this mean that it will all make sense to us all the way along? Does this mean we'll escape the difficulties of this life? The final analysis, yes. The day of the Lord is coming. And the final analysis, yes. God will on that day make everything right. Until then, no. But it is not our place to play creator and try to run the world, but to embrace our place as create creatures, trust ourselves to the creator. If you are God's through faith in Christ, there is nothing, nothing that will separate you from him and is from his love. And there we rest there we place our anchors through all the trials that life may bring us, embracing the reality of our life as his creatures under his care in his world. Let's pray. Father, help us to see this. Help us to do this, God. And help us, if I haven't expressed it this morning, to, to find our joy there, God, to, to be able to come to you in relief. We don't have to figure it out. We don't have all the answers. We couldn't get them if we tried. But Father, we are in your hands and in the hands of a, of a God who has made us and redeemed us and secured us to the end. There is no better place to be. Father, may we see that this morning. May we embrace our lives as creatures in your world under your care and there rejoice. And there we can exhale. There we can settle in. Fall into your fatherly arms and rest. Help us, God, to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.